Hi everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the podcast Creativity Sucks, which is hosted by Creative Review and looks at some of the challenges and questions facing the world of brands, design and advertising today. For this episode, we're going to discuss the role of sex and sexuality in the ad and design industry by taking on the question, does sex still sell? My name is Eliza Williams, Creative Reviews Editor, and I'll be hosting the discussion for this show where I'm joined by three excellent guests. Photographer and director Sophia Brad, Nils Leonard, co-founder of London-based creative studio Uncommon, and Louise Troen, Vice President of Marketing at Headspace. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Okay, to help us get into this slightly complex question, I thought we would start by discussing the original adage it comes out of and examine what we all think the phrase sex sells actually means. Nelson, I'm going to come to you first. What does this expression conjure up to you? We talk about it quite a lot. I mean, I think sex definitely does still sell, actually. I don't think, my view of it is that sex definitely sells, but I think really in the broadest sense, if you're looking at it, never mind as an advertiser, where previously we'd get to somehow cast some rank lens over someone who wasn't quite comfortable with it. I actually mean it in the broadest sense in terms of brands. Um, I think you're looking, uh, particularly in the UK, a generation that is having less sex than its parents for the first time in history. You know, we're having sex less than once a week for the first time ever. I know this because we're actually launching a sex brand soon as part of Uncommon's offering. We launch brands, but it's it's literally rooted in this insight around, honestly, around the death of sex to some degree. You know, you're seeing clubs of virgins grouped together and you're seeing all sorts of crazy backlashes, frankly, to the way that we're living. And so in that sense, I think sex absolutely does sell. I think we're, we've never been more in need of each other and openness and the ability to shag each other frankly and and that's never been harder which is kind of mad to say but that's the truth so I think in that sense it definitely does I just think the rules of engagement around how advertisers and brands can can play a part in that has absolutely changed. Are you able to talk about the brand you're launching or is it too too early on? It's uh, a brand uh, that I'm really excited about I won't tell you the name but needless to say you'll laugh when when you do hear it uh, given this conversation but it's um it's a subscription um, condom brand essentially a sustainable subscription condom brand that is going to offset, uh, you know, all of the condoms that we sell by sending some to developing countries who struggle with those. And it's literally birthed um, to take on, I suppose, what we're calling the death of sex and to sort of open up this issue actually and get everybody talking about why we're so divided. And, you know, there's all sorts of insights in there that, you know, people are now scrolling a mile a day on our phones. Porn has never been so readily available. Dating apps are actually pulling us apart, not together. We've literally lost the ability to speak to each other in bars. You know, it's um, it's insane, really, when you think about it. And so it, we just really wanted to play a part in that conversation. So this is why I was so happy to jump on this call. Being honest, if you look at the brands that we represent through Uncommon and, and the work we do, I mean, I, I'd argue there's smatterings of what we would we would refer to as sex through all of our work from, you know, business leisure mischief for British Airways recently. I mean, what does that conjure up in your mind? Most people go straight to sex. I don't know. It could be other things, you know, through to all sorts. I, I just think... Um, but I do think the rules of engagement have changed and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit as we go. Just to jump on that, Nils, I just wanted to add that I think you mentioned a really important point in terms of um, the advertising space and, and marketing overall, providing a platform for like a re-education to consumers. And I think for me, when it comes to sex selling, I actually think about the notion of it a little differently in the sense that like, I think anything that re-educates or, or opens up realms of conversation 
which typically are stigmatized or make people feel shame or embarrassed or vulnerable because they don't have enough access points or tools to understand what sex means for them, what pleasure means for you as a woman, how to navigate the conversation around things like consent. So I think, I think for me, sex selling is actually much more about two components. It's about the access to education through ad campaigns, marketing campaigns, comms campaigns. And then I think it's really about the tension that a lot of these creative projects and campaigns can build. And as I was reading the question that you sent over, I was thinking about, for me as a woman, the first ad I think I ever saw that made me feel that tension as a woman was the Diet Coke ad. And interestingly, for me as a young woman, seeing that ad, I saw women in corporate offices and corporate outfits feeling like they had the competence and the confidence to desire a man that was half naked cleaning their windows. And, you know, it's not to say that any form of objectification is, is you know, I don't, you know, I don't think any of that is, is appropriate, but I think it was a really interesting kind of formative experience in my life when it came to my career in that I realized that something as accessible as a, a Diet Coke can could actually be representative of much more than what it was in the same sense that it felt like you could have both when you kind of watched that ad. And I think that's a great example of they made sex sales through that, that campaign. And in kind of, you know, counter to that, at Christmas, they put out an ad where you're not thinking Father Christmas is attractive when you watch the Coke ad at Christmas. But when you watch, when you watch a Diet Coke ad, you're going, actually, when I drink this, I feel kind of sexually empowered. And I think that's something for me that was really interesting that, ads and, and creative work can actually incentivize women to reach a part of their sexuality that typically they didn't have educational access points to navigate before. So I think it's sort of two, twofold in the sense that I really agree with Nils that we're not talking about it enough and there aren't enough education and access points for young men and women in particular. But I also think that brands can, if they do it intentionally and, and appropriately, play a really formative and, and kind of educational and, and sort of revolutionary role in that as well. It's so interesting because I hear you talk and I feel like when I was thinking about this topic, I was going completely the opposite direction as you're going. Um, you know, I was actually thinking that, you know, there's been so much as where people are being shown as sexual beings uh, in order to sell other things that their category, like the Coke ad or, you know, I don't know, any other brands that are really not associated to, um, to sex, like, like a burger. Like, I don't know if you remember these uh, ads for Carl Jr.'s burgers, where you, it's literally like soft corn, you know, bikinis and ketchups. And, you know, it's over-sexualized, it's provocative commercials. At the time, he was standing out because he was edgy and provocative. But, you know, when you think about it, I feel it's really a male gaze ad. And it's been like that for a very long time. And I think we're moving away from, from sexuals marketing in the way that we were doing it before. Now there's such a difference now with uh, the new generation. You know, Gen Z audience is all about female empowerment and body positivity and choosing how to express yourself. And it's about self-acceptance. It's about owning yourself. It's about having agenda. For me, it would be the opposite. And I think, you know, we thank God we're moving away from these advertising. I think it's really true. I, I was just listening as, as you were both talking, thinking I wouldn't remotely even attempt to write an advert anymore on behalf of a brand trying to have a conversation about sex. I just don't think that's even something you could get into now. I think the only rule of engagement 
you could do is offer up an audience's view authentically themselves. I guess the point I was making is way back from advertising, way, way back from advertising. Look at the amount of brands now that just sell sex, OnlyFans, Patreon, you know, the, the mass of, of dating apps now. And, and then, you know, Lou, you'll, you'll have closer experience here. Now, by the way, I don't just mean sex in the grotty sense. I mean it in the widest human sense. I mean it in the connective sense, in the sense of love. But I kind of look at all of it and go, if you were in the business of starting a brand, never mind about making somebody an ad, it wouldn't be a bad place to look because I don't think we know what we are doing there anymore. And I think that's an insane place to be. And I think just, just to add, I definitely don't think it's necessarily right. I mean more from my perspective as a young woman, when I think about sex selling the ads that it kind of conjures up for me, when I was thinking through it, that ad made me feel something as a young woman. And whether that is right or wrong, I think it was a first of its kind for me in terms of my experience. But I completely agree with you that aligning some form of sexualized concept with a product or a brand that is completely independent of that is a really dangerous world for us to play in. And I agree, you know, I, Neil's just mentioned that I spent several years working at Bumble and sort of building this, this female empowerment model. And it's a really complex space to, to be in, in terms of ensuring that you're putting your audience and your consumers front and center and letting them define what that product and brand experience should be rather than you as a brand telling them. And I think that's been a pretty significant shift as well in the, in the last sort of five to 10 years that, you know, typically it was brands just sitting in a, in a room with a, you know, bunch of people that didn't actually reflect the audience that, that they were selling to. Um, and I think now, um, I'm sure it's the same for you, but at, at Headspace, we've, we've just launched a campaign where our members are kind of front and center of it. And it's not us working with talent or actors or um, trying to engineer a concept. It's, it's really the people who are experiencing the impact of the product on a day-to-day basis, just telling their organic stories on behalf of the brand. I think, Louise, I think your point is is really good about the, the Diet Coke in a way, because I feel like there's a journey that you can track from the initial idea of sex sales, which for me conjures up sort of, you know, terrible ads from the 70s and 80s, which just had beautiful women randomly placed uh, holding things, often in print ads, to literally sell stuff in that way. And then I think the Diet Coke ad maybe one of, was one of a few that marked a sort of a point where people were trying to do a spin on that. And we was, they were still using the same tactics, which is perhaps what, Sophie, you're kind of critiquing. It was trying to say, we know that you know this is nonsense, and we also want to, to show that we want to empower women. I mean, at that time, I remember those ads coming out, and it's seeming really amazing, actually. But it isn't, as everyone is sort of agreeing on it, it isn't right for now. And so I think it's interesting the point that you, um, it feels like everyone is saying what what we actually need now is work that is coming from people rather than people being told, maybe. If you look at the numbers in uh, who are making the work, if I'm taking the example of cinema in Hollywood, I think there's like 11% of directors who are women and like percent of DOPs are women so it's, it's it's pretty insane the numbers so I think you know when you think about like who is making the ads you if you're making it with a male perspective it's always going to be what they think we want and it's it was interesting there's there's this one film that I saw this year where I was absolutely mind blown by how it really touched me um I don't know if you've seen The Lost Daughter 
And suddenly, well, also because, you know, it, it talks about motherhood and I did this entire project about uh, motherhood, which is called I Didn't Want to Be a Mother. And it, it really tackles uh, the same subject. And suddenly I was thinking, oh, my God, it it is shot by a woman, done by a woman, and it really talks to me. So I think uh, for me, I mean, with it's a bit of a tangent right now, like sex sells. Probably sex sells if you make work that is if done for women when it's for women and done by men when it's for men or at least you know have a think about how you want to do it cindy gallup she's doing this um uh trying to change the the porn industry and trying to change how we see the view of porn and it's i think it's it's the same it's a similar feeling about how do we engage women in a different way how do we make sure that women feel empowered and feel seen and feel safe even even when we shoot it, you know, even when we shoot the ads. As a, as a photographer, you know, for me, it's all about this. It's all about even when I shoot nudity, how do I make sure that the, the person that I'm shooting is going to be uh, confident and is going to be feel safe? And, and then you, when, I'm sure that when you see the image, you can see that as well. You can see that the woman feels empowered and that she also took control over it. You know, I've got this example from, I saw an article about a Calvin Klein ad that uh, featured Kate Moss. She was topless. Um, she was shot in when she was 17. And she still has anxiety about this shoot because she was, you know, she, she felt like it was really difficult. It was, it was really degrading for her. And, um, and when you see, I was looking at the image the other day. And when you see the image now, you look at her face and she looks terrified. Um, and so that's, you know, that's interesting how today, I think, you know, women would really see that. I actually also really agree with the point that you're making just around if women aren't behind the camera and they're not, and similarly for, for men when, you know, ads and, and um, films are, are being made to, you know, support young men and, and mental health and a broad plethora of subjects that young men need support with. But I feel the same for, for literature. I recently read Lisa... Tadio's book, Animal, it's about a woman that is pretty visceral and sexually, for me, she's sexually empowered. It's written quite aggressively as a woman that really enjoys sex, who has significant challenges, but is sort of building this compelling anti-heroine fiction novel, which as I read it, I kind of really admired and, and felt that parts of her character I could really relate with. And I felt like I hadn't read a book in so long that didn't position this happy ending and this woman that sort of fit into all these categories of, you know, what a woman should be. And I, I found it really powerful to read a book written by a woman for, for women that really helped rethink, you know, the typical um, expectations. And, and, I, and it sits the same. Yeah, it's men. women, right? Amazing. Right. Rethinking these binary expectations of like, yes, you can have sex and it can just be physical and you can also leave the next morning as a woman. And it, it was a really powerful book that I would encourage any young woman to read because it helped me also kind of explore my own subconscious bias around, you know, men having, you know, several sexual partners and being sort of the legend in their group and women being judged or, or shamed for, for, for being the same. So I agree with you. We need sort of more representation, I, I think, from my side behind behind the scripts and behind the creative work to, to really make sense of it in front of it. Hearing that is crazy. Someone told me this quote. I said I was doing this podcast and I don't know if you guys have heard this quote. Someone said, uh, 
everything in the world's about sex apart from sex, which is about power. And I was like, fucking hell. When I heard that, I was like, oh my God. But what you just described is a visceral sense of power in that sense. And I don't know. I, I was sat there reeling around that just going, my God, if that's true, to some degree, it's dotted in everything we make and nothing at the same time. And I was kind of going, scratching my head around it. From my point of view, I think there's been more strides in the entertainment industry of late than than the advertising industry, certainly. I loved the show Heartstopper. I don't know if you guys saw it. It's a much more populist reference, Lou, than your book, I'm afraid. It was an LGBTQI kind of focused, I think, story of a coming of age story of a bunch of kids at school, but it was brilliantly played, absolutely brilliantly played. And you know, one of my boys is gay and um, it just meant the world to him and the way that they opened up those conversations. And this isn't in a grubby, observed, horrible way at all. It was weirdly beautiful, very honest, uh, had me in bits. And I just sort of, it was such a, a joy to see that. Um, I just wish more brands were able to to have that level, of, I guess, of, um, I don't know, wisdom and insight. And, really. and you see it for parents as well. I think we we do a lot of work with kind of the parent community, but also, you know, young, young men and young women from a mental health perspective. And, um, you know, we were talking as a team the other day about sex education and the power that it's had, not only for young people through those really formative years, but also for parents, because I think parents are sort of at this intersection now where they're trying to navigate, you know, kids and teenagers struggling with identity, sexual identity more than ever. Um, and parents need support across that as well, because generationally, the conversations, the language, just the vernacular of the subject is completely different. What they're exposed to on, you know, media platforms is completely, you know, it's completely revolutionary compared to what, you know, even I was looking at when I was in my teens. And I think, you know, when we talk about sex selling, there's a piece of it, which is how do we help and support young people to really have all of the representation to be able to kind of move through that process healthily but also how do we support parents so that they know the right language and the right um yeah the right kind of state to show up in to to support I think it's that's been a a kind of very successful way for brands to engage with this topic hasn't it that I think um showing that they can be sort of responsible and thoughtful and respectful has been a way that you can still engage with the topic of sex without it perhaps getting a backlash. Um, I think it'd be interesting to talk about when there's a backlash. I mean, is there still a space for, if we talk about brands in particular, but maybe this extends to other parts, is there still a space for kind of fun and humor around this topic? Or does that risk falling back into some of these cliches that that people are kind of rejecting now? Uh, Nils, what do you think on that? How With your new brand that's coming, are you going about it in a very serious way or is there, is there space for humour? Uh, humour, as you know, humour is a brilliant way to have very serious conversations. Um, you know, I remember making, weirdly, making a, an advert for the British Heart Foundation with Vinnie Jones in many years ago. Um, and it was all about, you know, it was, it was funny and it was all about push hard and fast. And the reason we were making the ad uh, was to educate people as to how to save a life. And of course, that's one of the most difficult and touchy subjects in the world. No one wants to look down the barrel of that. So the only way to to educate them was to entertain, we discovered at that point. I think the same is true when you're talking about sex, and I think humour certainly is there. There's a tension, Eliza, though, that you're speaking to, which is rife through the entire industry, of, or frankly, through anybody communicating right now in the world, which is when you go near any potentially emotional, potentially uh, tender or fragile subject, you risk essentially getting it wrong. And that risk has never been so great. 
you know, the, and the downsides and upsides of, of getting it right and wrong have never been so far apart. And I think there is a sense that brands are happy now to pull to the middle and not perhaps behave as honestly as they could. Um, I do think humor is brilliant, but I think truth trumps it all. I think if if possible, and if you're able to, if you can just speak truths and move people with those, whether that's through humor or through emotion, and you can behave authentically, and and you know honestly, that's still the the old rule, but it is still the rule. I think um, because I think I think there is more fear now than there ever was in communication, and not just around sex, around absolutely everything. And I think there's some sense that you know that's the tightrope we're walking really. Sophie, it'd be interesting, I think, for you to talk about um, the Adidas campaign because that came out of not a place of humour at all, but out of a place of empowerment really but still received some backlash can you just talk through what the campaign was and how it looked for anyone who might not know yeah yeah. so the campaign is the is the breast gallery so we basically put um 63 for um naked boobs on a poster saying that um you know every every boobs is different um and so that's why adidas created new bras um, that support every single uh, shape of boobs for adidas it was really a revolution because they really went uh, super fine to researching all the different bras that could support different sports you know i think by showing all the different boobs uh, it really creates a created a, a backlash and sensation uh, so basically, there was yeah 24 complaints, including one of you know, nudity. I think people were saying that the women were objectified and sexualized. Um, and I, you know, we only showed body parts. So what we showed was you know big boobs, uh, breastfeeding boobs, really uh, odd shaped boobs, and saggy ones. You know, all all different types of boobs that you see actually in reality. We showed that uh, breasts are not these perfectly round and perk things that we only see in advertising campaigns and, and you know, because they're all retouched. That was the entire thing of the campaign. And the, the idea was really to change women's perceptions about their own bodies. You know, it was actually really interesting when we did the campaign because we, all the creatives and, and, and me, we are all part of the campaign. So my boobs are part of this campaign. And, um, and it was interesting as I had a real epiphany when we shot it. You know, I realized that um, I had body issues, which I didn't think I had. And uh, when I saw my boobs and I, I realized that they were normal because they were just, you know, as different as everyone was. So, you know, for me, it was really a revelation when we started shooting it. When we did the shoot, it was really beautiful. We shot all these women and we were all talking about how beautiful we were. And, and there was an emulation on the shoot that was really incredible. There was this revelation that, you know, I could really reach people with uh with this campaign and i could really try to you know make the world a better place and try to make sure that women would see themselves in a different way and that's when i realized that you know as a photographer if i had done this shoot uh, on my own i would never have had the reach that adidas had and so with adidas it was incredible for me so we did have some backlash, of course, but it's only 24 women. How many women, how many men and women are in the world? It's only, you know, 24 people. Um, but I think what is what was interesting in this campaign is that it really resonated with people. I could see myself in, in this campaign. People could see themselves in this campaign. And so it's really coming from a different perspective. Well, here's an observation, right? Like you were behind the lens. It was an amazing Clearly, I, I read about the campaign at the time and congratulations on it. And 
it was clearly a very beautiful experience creating it and all of the above. Here's something that I think is super interesting about our industry. So you were behind the lens. It was appropriately done. It was beautifully crafted. It was completely true. And yet still the world finds a way to be polarized. And I think there's something we've all got to get our heads around here, which is even when you get it as right as you could get it, I would argue, <laughs> there are some people who are just not going to like what you do because the world has never been so fast to judge and so able to judge on such a, a large scale. I feel like um, the, you could get it as right as you could possibly get it. You could be authentic in the idea. You could put the right person behind the lens. You can create the beautiful experience where everyone was empowered. And still people are going to find a way to, to be offended or, or find it remarkable in a negative way. And the point I'm trying to make is that I think for brands and creators, this subject matter is not one to shy away from from that reason. I think we have to thicken our skin a little. And I think if we're going to go out into the world and do this stuff, I think it's interesting. I don't think there's any way to create anything these days that is not going to polarize in some sense. And so the point I'm trying to make is that even when you get it 100% right, in terms of the construct of the idea and the campaign, if a brand is leveraging it, someone is going to have a view on it. And that's something we've had to get get our heads around for sure as an industry. I was just going to add that I actually think that, that, you know, we say the word backlash, but I think it's actually more, we need to reframe it and look at it as people are reacting, right? People are feeling uncomfortable because it's new. And I think we need to feel confident. And this is where I think leadership across, you know, the entire landscape and spectrum of the roles that we all sit in is critical to that revolution because we have to feel really confident, intentional, and we have to back ourselves and our teams in the creative work, knowing that, and I completely agree with that, Nils, that any change ever, if you look at the history of any type of revolution, it makes people feel uncomfortable. And I think we have to be really aware and confident and happy with the fact that, you know, whether we call it backlash or people reacting, that's also part of the process. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And that should also be part of the PR, um, you know, communication that you do with your client, you know. I'm working on a campaign right now that is, unfortunately, I can't talk about it, and I really would love to, but um, uh, it's for Unilever. And it is also part of um, the things we're we're talking about, you know, we, we're doing something that, you know, is right and is, is right for now, and, and we want to educate people, but you know, there will be, there definitely will be, a, you know, people who are not liking it. I think, you know, to, to add to this point, if you do something for the sake of provocation, it's not going to work. But if you, if you do something and you have a reason for it and there's a story behind it, I think, you know, then, you know, people are way more likely to like it. And then, you know, you also have a say in there. I think the truth is that in the sense that we've never been so exposed as creators, as clients, whatever you want to say, it's very easy for me to say that it's, you know, I'm a co-founder of this company. So everything we put out, I'm, I've already looked down the barrel of, well, how are people going to feel and how do I feel? I think the danger is when you have passengers at brands and they're unsure. And all I would urge anybody to do running a brand, and this is what you're both speaking to, is like, know what you feel about the issue, really have had that conversation with yourself. And really know how you're going to respond to the world when, as and when they talk about it. I think that's exactly right. We launched a women's collection a couple of months ago, um, all based on kind of insights and, and kind of data in terms of what our members so desperately needed support with across sex and relationships, kind of body image, uh, consent, all of these topics. And we had a lot of feedback internally. And, you know, often these challenges aren't just when it reaches the market. It can also be a, a delicate dance that, you know, people like I have to do internally at brands. It took us a while to kind of move through the process. But a lot of the feedback, which I think was a really fair push, was 
you know, we're launching a women's collection, but we're living in this environment where things shouldn't be so binary. But what was so important to me and the team was we have to be something to somebody rather than trying to be everything to anybody. And if we try and be everything to every group of individual, we will end up not helping and supporting anyone. So there will be an evolution of this collection, which talks to various different groups struggling with various different um, both physiological and, and mental challenges when it comes to sex and relationships and, and body image and so forth. But it was really important to me that we started with a category that we were seeing insights rooted in. And I, I really believe so vehemently that we often try and be so generalist about everything that we end up being vague and broad and not actually doing the due diligence of really supporting at a very deep level the people that we've set out to, to kind of support and help. Well, Lou, what I've, I mean, right or wrong, what I love that what you just said. I think it was excellent. And right or wrong, I've got to the opinion that, frankly, a lot of brands don't really want to be seen. You know, they, they actually don't. They're in the business of, of remaining in the middle and continuing. And they don't want to play a part in things, you know. And, and I, there's nothing like a crisis to ask very clear questions of people and brands, which is, do you want to play a part in all of this or not? And I think what I've learned from our experience is that some people don't. They just, they'll never articulate that, but they just don't. Well, the problem is also that cancel culture has an, a net effect on commercial revenue, right? So when you're working at a brand that's putting, you know, three, four, five million dollars behind a campaign, the risk often people aren't bold or strong enough to go, this is the right thing to do for the brand. And we're working with a brilliant agency that know the market and this creative work will shift the balance in this particular topic or category. But in my experience, you know, working agency side and now working brand side, there's not enough people being confident enough with those decisions. And that's why, you know, when we work with, you know, directors and and agencies like both of you, you know, are so brilliant at running. It can be challenging, I can imagine, for you when you see it so clearly, but there are leaders in the brand space or marketing space that aren't bold enough to take those jumps. There's a lot of talk of bravery, isn't there, in this issue, but in our industry in general. And what we realised, if anybody's talking about bravery, actually, we're getting this slightly wrong. What are you more afraid of, leaving the world exactly as it is or, or actually attempting to play some part in it or change it? And, and that's a conversation we often have with everybody. We try not to work with people who don't have values that align with ours. That's the long and the short of it. But you're right, it's hard. I particularly think it's hard internally, Lou, on your side of clients in general, particularly larger ones. I think it's a much bigger space and fewer people really have that sentiment, I suppose. Louise, how do you deal if there is um, criticism or if you see a wave of of potential cancellation happening. I don't know if you've experienced that either at Headspace or any other brand you've worked with. I totally agree with you. I think the need for sort of thoughtful, different, new ideas and, you know, and actually audiences are crying out for this as well, need to come from brands. But I also totally can see how frightening it can be if you're on the wave of a of people pushing back. How have you dealt with that question? I mean, I think it's about education and I think it's about you know, and I hate to use the word courage, but just having the courage of your conviction as a senior leader in the business. I think often, you know, controversial or, or the notion of controversy can mean very different things to different people. So for me, launching a women's collection when hundreds of thousands of women, you know, 89% of women don't think the medical industry take their sexual desires seriously. That for me is a wild insight that we as a brand have a very natural position in. We can support with that. We can provide you know, expert advice and science-backed 
content that can actually, for a fraction of the price that you would typically pay for, we can support with that. So I think it's about taking people on the journey. I think it's about being insights and data driven. And I think it's about putting the members or your you know, community or either the audience that you're, you're trying to capture. It's about putting them first and letting them define what your, you know, whatever brand that you, you sit in, what your strategy is. And as long as we continue to put them at the forefront. And when I was at Bumble, we did exactly the same. It was, you know, we let women tell us the features when I was there that they wanted and, and what they needed support with. You know, one of the examples there was we were expecting women on the app to make the first move, this whole revolution of reverse engineering, how women were typically kind of conditioned to behave in a dating environment. And lots of women didn't know how to. That was a kind of process that we went along in terms of women were saying, this is great that you want me to make the first move, but in your mind, that is empowering us. But actually, sometimes I don't want to, and that's empowering to me. And other times I don't know how to. And so it's disempowering when I go through that process. So I think it's more about moving methodically through the journey rather than being so finite about this is the end product and this is what we're creating and being open and flexible to feedback and insights along the way and and almost kind of moving through it you know the, the women's collection took lots of different turns and you know we changed the name a couple of times and the content we we re-looked out but ultimately I I felt you know strongly enough that it was the right thing to do and I think we had sort of two or three pieces of feedback actually from men which we hadn't accounted for we thought it would come from you know the non-binary community or the trans community and I think that that was an interesting one that it was actually men saying what about our sexual desires and we struggle with performance anxiety but this content is all about how women can feel more sexually empowered and so what we've done now is we've we've kind of sat down as a content team and we're evolving a, a men's collection specifically but I go back to the same point that, especially for us as a brand, and I, I can't necessarily speak on behalf of other brands, but I, I agree with Nils that we don't want to leave this world being broad and vague to everybody as a mindfulness app. We want to have a, you know, a, 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 like an actual and acute difference on people's lives. And we can only do that when we put them first. Lou, can I speak to something you're, I think, a brilliant example of, which is also, though, I think we have to take things personally. I think there is no board at your company that's going to make these type of calls for you. And I remember, um, this is a crazy story, but very indicative, I think. I don't know how this came up in my head, but I remember working way back when with The Sun and The Times. And I remember the editor of The Sun had me over and said, page three, what shall I do about it? And I remember thinking, God, okay. <laughs> you know, and he's, you only get your editorship once. You only get your brand leadership once. You only get to start a company once. And I remember I sort of said to him, well, you should get rid of it. Now, on the subject matter of sex cells, you know, they have actual data and stats at that time around how many papers and people loved it and all the above, but also a conversation around removing sex cells. You know, imagine the other people they would have, you know, spoken to had, had he just removed page three at that time. And I remember thinking, God, you do just get one go as a person, never mind all the strategy and the, and the you know, the right thing to do and the wrong. I'm like, you get one part to play. And, and I remember looking back thinking, God, I wish he'd done that because he would have been the editor that got rid of it. And that would have been it. And I know that sounds incredibly trite, but it's important, those things, the calls you make around the subject matter speak volumes. But I also love that. And it sounds that we're all talking about this, but when you're either behind the camera or you're coming up with those creative concepts, you're building a marketing plan. You know, we, we don't lean in enough to instincts. And, you know, our instincts are there for a reason and our experience in these industries, you know, are tenured. So I think 
often, you know, the, the guys making the final board decisions or whoever's signing the final check, a lot of my role, and I think agency roles as well with clients, is to go, I am so confident in this that if it doesn't work, like that's on that's on me. Um, but I think that kind of instinct, instinctive reaction, you know, Nils, it's like when we work together, we felt something immediately when you put the work in front of us. That reaction was probably a mix of lots of things in my experience in life, probably 50% of which were personal as a consumer. But I think leaning into that instinct, you know, gut, these gut feelings, they, they're sort of guardian angels in our industry. And I, I don't think we lean into them enough. Sometimes we can over strategize to the point that I don't even know where the fuck we started the strategy so long. So I would encourage also, you know, us to lean into that as well. We're running out of time. And I'd like just to do a kind of roundup at the end by maybe going back to Nils's slightly bleak opening uh, gambit of of uh, a generation not having sex and a sense that there's a sense of the death of sex, I think was your expression, Nils. Yeah, welcome to optimism. God. <laughs> I think we've probably answered this along the way, but it would just be interesting to hear from all of you again. Where do you hope this will go in terms of advertising and brands? What are you looking to see from brands along the way? Sophie, I'm going to come to you first. So, we said earlier, you know, I think, I think at some point it's not about likability. I think it's definitely about truth. And, um, and we said that when you speak the truth to people, they will really respond. When I did the exhibition, I didn't want to be a mom. I was one of the first one to talk about how motherhood sucks, really. That was in 2019. And um, I opened the exhibition with really big letters in front of my house. And uh, I was really, really scared of people's reactions because nobody was really talking about this subject. Nobody was saying that they didn't like motherhood at first. And then the people's reactions were incredible. And, um, and everyone was saying exactly the same thing. They were like, this is my story. For me, it was incredible that I found an insight into people's life in 2019 as a, just a photographer. So I think, you know, as you said, it's, if we really speak to people and really find what they really want and, and their insights, that's, that's definitely the way to go and not just sexualize people in order to sell things outside of the category that you know I think it's it's we're definitely leaving that behind interesting Louise would you agree with with what Sophie said yeah completely I don't think we should take the fact that young people aren't having as much sex as what the future is going to hold I think we're at a really to steal Nils's word polarizing time at the moment where socially politically culturally there's a lot of stuff going on that is incredibly triggering for people. And I think that younger generations are smarter than ever. So these Diet Coke ads are just not going to fly. And these brands, you know, to points made earlier, that apply sensational creative to a product that actually isn't sensational is also not going to fly from a consumer perspective. But I think that makes it interesting, right? I think we're all in this business because we want to create really interesting work that changes the status quo. And I think that puts a challenge in front of all of us. And I think I've worked with Nils before and the work that you're doing is incredible, you know, behind the camera and as a director. And I think that means, you know, we're going to have to up the ante and we're going to have to really relook and rethink about how we work with both brands and, and creative work. And I think more products and services and platforms are going to come out that are going to address this. And I'm the forever optimist. So, you know, I think anything that is sort of bleak in front of us sets a, sets a challenge that, that folks like us, like us have to figure out a way to help fix. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And it has been a really difficult few years. We all know that. Niels, what, anything to add to what Sophie and Louise have said? I chime with Lou's comment and she'll know where I'm coming from with this. It's a common rhetoric here at Uncommon. But if you look at the brands we love most now, most of them are a response to some form of panic or threat in the past. Spotify was birthed because record labels were taking the piss. Netflix exists because cable TV was drip feeding us content. When I look at the death of sex or that stuff, I I look at it as... um, tinder really for for something greater and a response and i just hope the only thing i would say is i i am an optimist too i just hope that the tender nature of all these conversations doesn't mean that everybody retreats you know i think it's all right to get it wrong and to cause controversy and to be spoken about and debated and i think we have to remember that that's our role you know otherwise why are we in this job you know and and that's all i would say i think you know we need to be uh, more open and more forgiving and more visceral and care more. And if we do that, it'll be a better place. Very good. All right. Well, that seems a perfect note to end on. As with all the topics we've covered in this podcast, I feel like there's so much more to say and, and to revisit. So uh, hopefully we will get to do that at some point. But thank you for now to Sophie, Louise and Nils for your input and insights. I thought it was really interesting. And thanks to everyone for listening to Creativity Sucks. There's several other uh, episodes out there which examine everything from politics to the metaverse, of course, um, and whether advertising in general is getting worse. That was our opening one. So please um, have a listen to those as well. But thanks very much for listening to this.